0: Oh jeez.
1: oof! Oh, my gosh. You're listening to Aw, Jeez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I have a thing for cable TV.
0: And I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. From Minnesota Public Radio, in the heart of the North Star State, we will bring you an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota.
1: Every week, we'll go over what happened on the most recent episode of Fargo and talk about who's dead now. We'll ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. In our inaugural episode, we're gonna talk to Rahul Hamid, who taught a course on the Coen brothers at NYU, and he'll talk all about the movie behind the show. Then we'll unload everything we know about the new season, which premieres next week.
0: But before we look ahead, we thought it'd be a good idea to catch up on season one and everything that went down in Bemidji and Duluth.
1: For Fargo on the small screen, writer Noah Hawley kind of translates the Coen Brothers frosty vision of Minnesota murder into 10 episodes.
0: Now we want to give you a spoiler alert here. We're going to recap the first season, meaning that we're going to pretty much give away all of the spoilers for the first season, so FYI, if you haven't seen the first season of Fargo. It's on iTunes so you can catch up.
1: Yeah and the show is in the spirit of the movie Fargo. It's not a straight adaptation. It doesn't really reference any characters or events but the same act is at the center of both the show and the movie. A man beset by his nagging wife Ends up killing her.
0: The TV show is sort of an alternate version of the same universe. You have similar characters who follow a plot that has similar elements, but ultimately the plot of the TV show follows its own trajectory. And there are a lot of knowing winks to the movie, so the original source material is never too far from your mind when you're watching the TV show.
1: Now, the Fargo TV show opens with a lot of snow, naturally.
0: Because, as we know, it never... Doesn't snow in Minnesota, right?
1: We have no summer.
0: Never. So the show begins and we meet a maniacal killer played by Billy Bob Thornton, complete with his serial killer bowl cut, who just happens to be passing through Bemidji, Minnesota. Oh, and by the way, in his trunk, there's a man in his underwear. So Billy Bob hits a deer, his car hits a ditch, and the underwear man, takes the opportunity, cause wouldn't you, <laughs> to bust free of the trunk, and he makes a break for it across the snowy tundra. Meanwhile, Billy Bob has a head injury, has now lost his victim, and he stalks into town so we're now in bucolic bemidji and there we meet lester Nygar. now this is the william h macy stand-in and he's played by martin freeman who you might know from the british office or the hobbit
1: freeman imitates macy a lot more convincingly than alberta canada stands in for minnesota they shot this puppy in canada And this is a much cuter Bemidji than the Northwoods Gateway that Minnesotas know. There's a lot less chainsaw art.
0: So much less chainsaw art. Poor Lester. He's kind of a sad sack. He can't do anything right.
2: Well, if you were a better salesman, I'd have bought you a nicer tie.
0: Lester can't even fix a gall darn washing machine. He's 40 years old, and he also can't escape his high school bully, who of course still lives in town and still torments him, Sam Hess.
1: Right, so a tango with Hess and his adorably dim-witted sons lands Lester in the hospital room, sitting right next to, of course, Billy Bob and his head injury. And, you know, it turns out that Billy Bob is just one of those hired hitmen that you want to spill all your secrets to, because Lester ends up telling him all about how Hess has tortured him. And Billy Bob, like some kind of twisted guardian angel, kindly offers to take care of Hess for him.
2: You're asking me to kill this man. No, that was, I I was joking.
1: And Lester doesn't think he's serious. Mistake one, Lester. So Billy Bob takes down Hess in the back of a strip club in flagrante with a knife in the brain. Meanwhile, Lester's day has gone from bad to worse when his wife gets on him again about that darn washing machine. Lester snaps. He smashes her with a hammer over and over again.
0: Oh, geez. Oh, geez.
1: Then he's all <gasps> covered in blood, holding the murder weapon, wondering who is he going to call for help? The only killer that he knows.
0: Billy Bob! Lester, have you been a bad boy? <coughs> Jeez. yeah Well, so now meanwhile, the Bemidji police have two bodies on their hands because Underwear Man was found frozen to death in the woods. And then, of course, there is Sam Hess. But... They only have two bodies because they don't know yet about Lester's wife lying dead in the basement. So Chief Verne and Deputy Molly Salverson are investigating both the underwear man and Sam Hess. A little birdie at the emergency room points them to Lester, and Chief Verne, whose wife is nine months pregnant, of course, and who is Molly's beloved mentor, shows up at Lester's house at the same time as Billy Bob. <laughs> Bad timing because he gets blown away by Billy Bob. So now the body count is at four, if you're keeping track. And Lester has now gone from being a failing insurance salesman to someone at the center of a killing spree in about uh, 36 hours time. It only gets worse.
1: It turns out that Sam Hess was involved with an organized crime syndicate out of Fargo. And they've dispatched two men who communicate in sign language because one of them is deaf to find out what happened to Hess. Billy Bob, our stone-cold killer, flees to Duluth. So when Colin Hanks, who's playing this ah shucks kind of police officer, Gus Grimley, pulls over Billy Bob, Billy Bob makes it very clear that Hanks arresting him will be the last thing that he ever does. He is scary. He's got these like reptilian eyes peering out of the car. And Grimley is a single father, and he's got his 10-year-old daughter on the police radio scanner calling for him so he lets billy
0: bob go i'm rolling up my window
1: triumphant billy bob rolls right onto the next job which is helping the minnesota grocery king with a certain little blackmailing problem he's having.
0: So this becomes a major new character, the Minnesota supermarket king. He's a devout and completely corrupt Catholic. We're going to learn a lot more about his life, probably more than we really needed to know. So
1: while Billy Bob is helping out with the blackmailing, Molly and the gangsters are on his trail, and Gus Grimley is left in a puddle of shame after chickening out during the traffic stop. But he will get a chance to redeem himself.
0: Back to Billy Bob, who is hired to help solve this blackmailing problem the Minnesota supermarket king is facing. But Billy Bob doesn't so much solve the blackmail problem as he becomes the blackmailer.
1: The way this works is that Billy Bob finds the blackmailer and then blackmails the blackmailer with his own blackmail. Got it?
0: I'm confused. That's okay, I'm not. Billy Bob tortures the poor Minnesota grocery king, bringing biblical plagues, seriously biblical plagues, into his house. We're talking blood in the showerhead. We're talking grasshoppers in the grocery stores. And Billy Bob ups the blackmail price to a cool $1 million. Uh, so he's reveling in his brilliant torture, and it is brilliant. It's definitely working. But meanwhile, we go back to Lester, who's now pretty much gotten away with his wife's murder, except Deputy Solverson is convinced He's guilty. And she's not going to stop until she proves that Lester was in some way responsible for the death of not just his wife, but she's also thinking about her beloved chief. Her new boss, Bob Odenkirk, sabotages her with his stupidity every chance he gets, but she won't let it go. Luckily, she has a supportive dad, the police officer turned diner owner, Lou Salverson.
1: We will get back to him later. But working diligently, Molly IDs the frozen underpants man. Turns out he was kidnapped from St. Paul by Billy Bob, and she gets a grainy picture of Billy Bob from the surveillance tape.
0: Grimley sees this photo when it goes out across the state, and he recognizes Billy Bob as the guy who spooked him at the traffic stop. So now Grimley realizes he just let a killer go free. Oops.
1: At this point, Molly and Grimley team up, and it's awkward deputy love at first sight. Almost. Molly gets a name from the motel register where Billy Bob stayed in Bemidji. Lauren Malvo. So evil officially has a name now. Meanwhile, the gangsters catch up with Lester. And after a night in a jail cell altogether, it's a long story, Lester gives up the name too. Lauren Malvo. So now the gangsters, Molly, and Grimley are all heading for Malvo. And they find him in Duluth all at the same time. Suddenly, the worst storm of the year turns into, like, this nightmare snow globe with bullets and snow flying everywhere. Did I mention the gangsters have bazookas? So Malvo, a.k.a. Billy Bob, takes down one gangster. Molly shoots another one. But when the snow clears, Malvo is gone and Molly is lying in the snow, bleeding. Grimly accidentally shot her.
0: Don't no worry, if you think that kills the romance, you're wrong. It's still blossoming because it turns out all Molly loses is a spleen, and who needs those? Anyway, meanwhile, Billy Bob, a.k.a. Malvo, is pissed that someone came so close to killing him. He tracks down that Fargo crime syndicate that sent the gangsters and gets rid of it. The whole thing, he kills 22 people in one spree through this quaint-looking Fargo office building, while two FBI agents are sitting outside completely oblivious. What
2: was that? Call it in. Oh, okay. Call it in, man. Your pop is in the way. Where are you?
1: Hold on. The FBI agents, for the record, are played by Key and Peel. Yeah, that Key and Peel.
0: Those agents, obviously, are a little disappointed they missed the action, but they're going to get their chance again later. So, back in Bemidji now, just as the pieces are coming together connecting Malvo, or Billy Bob, and Lester, Lester manages to pin his wife's murder on his unsuspecting brother. <sighs> Sorry, Chaz. Well, for a minute, it looks like everyone's going to get away with it. Malvo's in the wind. Lester walks free. The Bemidji chief tells Molly she can't pursue the case anymore. Leave poor Lester alone. He's suffered enough. Flash forward a year. In the middle of an episode, this flash forward happens, and we find Lester living high and fancy as the insurance salesman of the year, celebrating in Vegas, no less, with Linda, his pretty co-worker, as his new wife. Meanwhile, back in Bemidji, Molly is pregnant and she welcomes Grimly home from his new job as a postal worker. They're together, they're expecting, and presumably Grimly is now safe from ever having to shoot anyone again. What do you think? Is this a quasi-happy ending?
1: Not so much. So while Lester is accepting his sales award in Vegas, he catches sight of good old Malvo, our friend Billy Bob, who is yucking it up in his new persona as a freewheeling dentist.
2: It's me, Lester.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, sir. You must have me confused with someone. No. Nope. Malvo gives him the chance to walk away, but Lester, cocky with his new success, keeps pushing
0: it. Malvo needs to suddenly eliminate all of his new marks, who have suddenly become witnesses to his relationship with Lester. Oh my God! Oh my. That's on you.
1: Malvo shoots three people dead right in the elevator with Lester. And Lester runs off, splattered with blood, which we've seen him like that before. And Malvo promises... See you later, Lester. So where does he go? Back to Bemidji. By now, the FBI has decided to take Molly seriously about her theories over what really happened with Hess and Lester and Malvo and the gangsters. And the two agents who missed Malvo's murder spree come to talk with the very pregnant Molly.
2: This is tremendous work, Deputy. Impressive.
1: And when Molly finds out that Lester is now tied to these Las Vegas murders too, she is raring to investigate him. But Grimley makes her promise to sit this one out considering she's about to pop. That's a a caring husband, I guess. But with Malvo on his tail, Lester proves that he is a terrible husband. Again, he knowingly sacrifices poor Linda as bait for Malvo so he can escape.
2: What's that now?
0: Someone killed the second Mrs. Nygard. Body count continues to rise, and not even the FBI can protect Lester now, because Malvo... Billy Bob takes down the FBI agents guarding Lester's house. Sorry, Key and Peel. And the two uh, old friends, Lester and Malvo, totally go at it, guns blaring. Lester gets his nose broken yet again but he manages to shoot Malvo in the leg. Malvo flees with a bleeding leg, leaving a very Cohn-esque trail of blood through that white snow. And then we're in for the final showdown of this Midwestern. Poor Grimley, the postman now, you remember, he's still stewing in the defeat from losing Malvo twice, is waiting for Malvo in this little cabin where Malvo retreats with his wounds. Grimley is now a postal worker turned vigilante.
1: And Grimley has managed to track Malvo to this cabin and he's gonna take the law into his own hands. This time Grimley fires at the right person and kills him. Evil is dead.
0: Hooray! But did he kind of steal his new wife's thunder? I mean after all Molly solved the case.
1: I get to be chief. Because the show would not exist without the Coen Brothers, to kick things off, we're going to talk to a Coen Brothers aficionado, Rahul Amid, from New York University.
0: Rahul is a cinema scholar, he's a film critic, an editor at The Cineast, and a faculty member at NYU, where last year he taught a course called The Coen Brothers, Failure and the American Dream. Thanks for being with us today, Rahul.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here.
0: So what was your first exposure to The Coen Brothers?
2: My first exposure to the Coen Brothers was in middle school, (laughs) which was probably a little too young, but it was the year that uh, Blood Simple came out. I was able to get into the R-rated movie, (laughs) and um, I was really blown away by it. I remember I went to see it with a group of friends. It was funny and sort of shockingly violent, but incredibly beautiful to look at. And I got got really curious about who the Coen brothers were. And it really left an impression on me.
0: So then fast forward to when Fargo comes out. By this point, the Coen brothers are well-established in their careers. They're very well-regarded. And my understanding is when you first saw the movie Fargo, you weren't necessarily blown away.
2: No, I, I actually um, really disliked it. I thought it was a, a very condescending film. It felt like sort of two, like, overly clever kids kind of just scoring points on all the people who bullied them when they were growing up. And there was this way in which, you know, the the just the, the sort of horrible caricature of the Minnesota accent, I don't know, the coldness and the darkness of that world. It felt nasty and brutal. They were just creating characters to make fun of them and see how mean they could be, essentially.
0: And yet it's become one of the Coen brothers' Best known and best loved films.
2: I, I think I really had to sort of watch it, watch it again, uh, come to see you know how how beautifully made it is. Um, I think be more won over by Francis McDormand's performance, um, and also I think you know as you get older, the coldness of the world that they created. It, it resonates with you a little bit more as you sort of learn a bit more about the world, feel the sort of disappointments of life in one way or another. And I think as I got a little bit older, I came to sort of, you know, kind of see more where, where the Cohens were coming from. And I think also, you know, what eventually became the subject of my course was something that was coming to me as I think i politically matured as well, which is, you know, that there's a way in which the movie is really about our outsized desire for success. And that's essentially what, you know, all the characters are doing and they're sort of disappointed in that. And I think that rather than, as I had as a younger person, see Marge um, and her husband who finally gets the three cent stamp, you know, see them as sort of pathetic figures that are being made fun of, I think I came to realize that Marge can be happy even when she sort of looks up at the end of the movie and says, you know, it's a beautiful day and you see this horrible gray (laughs) snowy day. um, That... You know she's able to see the world that way because she ha- she actually has realistic expectations about life and and basically decent expectations about life, um, and so I think that was that's kind of one of the things that essentially did kind of inspire the course inspired the course as well as my you know my great uh, love for a lot of their other films as well.
1: So now that you had this kind of reformed view of Fargo. What do you think about the way they adapted it into the television show?
2: I mean, I think it's really clever. I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun to see the way that they, you know, make references to the original movie and obviously references to tons of other Coen Brothers movies. I think, you know, because of the form of television, it can't sort of be as sort of perfectly kind of structured as the way as the Coen's original film uh, you have to spend a lot more time with the characters and you have to spend and there has to be a lot more plot. There's a lot more of an arc to the characters. Another thing that kind of struck me about it is, you know, the the, the main character, like there's something really pathetic about, um, you know, Jerry in the movie. You know, he does everything wrong, but he doesn't actually he doesn't actually want his wife to be killed. Um he just wants the money. He just, you know, it, it's more about his sort of ambition and his sense of failure and his sense of frustration compared with his father-in-law. You know, in, in a lot of ways, because uh, we spend a lot more time with Lester in the TV show, he ends up in a lot of ways being a much more evil character. Partially what Noah Holly may also be doing there, as much as it is about the Cohen brothers, that there's a way in which he's also kind of playing with the sort of long-form quality TV anti-hero, you know, uh, like uh, Breaking Bad or Mad Men. The series kind of starts off with him, with the wife being really truly horrible. You know, he gets bullied by the guy who, who eventually gets killed. In a way, Fargo kind of goes against that by really making Lester less and less likable. And in a way, it seems like kind of a critique of that, of sort of making a hero out of that sort of long form TV anti-hero um and he and he becomes truly horrible and you know as he turns in his brother um and even finally uh gets rid of his second wife like there he he's not capable of any he's not capable of any affection or warm feeling at all
1: so you kind of got to know the midwest through coen brothers movies how do you think the midwest shaped their style of movie making
2: that's an interesting question like um I mean, I do think there is something about being Jewish in in a place where you really are the minority and you really are the other that does shape their sensibility quite a lot. They do portray Minnesota once in in one other instance in in A Serious Man and kind of I think get into that uh, sort of more clearly that it's this sort of like insular, insulated community that is exists with its own rules and in its own world and and weirdly uh kind of half in the present and half in the past within the sort of larger world of sort of suburbia
0: so if there's going to be one other coen brothers movie turned into a tv series and you could choose what movie that would be what movie would you
2: pick i'd love to see like raising arizona i'd love to see what what happens to that what happened to see that baby like change hands another 500 times and have a different story and a different life in each of those different in each of those different worlds that uh uh because i think that is one of the funniest Things about that movie is the way that uh, immediately just having possession of the baby turns you into a parent, and then all of a sudden you have all of these—you <laughs> know—you have a, you feel all of these responsibilities for what it means to be a parent and how to raise a kid, and it—it's it, it, just the responsibility of having the baby turns you into something different.
0: Just think what the diaper budget for that show would be. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> well, thanks a lot for talking with us today.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, so now let's talk about Season 2. A lot is a mystery still, of course, that's the point, but we do know a little bit about what's coming, and I kind of consider myself an expert because there are a couple dozen uh, preview videos available on the FX website, and I have watched every single one of them. How long did that take you? It took me about 4 minutes and 30 seconds. They're they're short videos.
1: (laughs) So, first off, we know that we're going to see a character we've seen before, Lou Salverson. That's Deputy Molly Salverson's pie-scooping, diner-owning dad from season one. Remember, he used to be a cop before a snowplow robbery went south and he was shot in the leg. So this season is not going to be about a 60-year-old man hanging up his apron and returning to the force. Instead, we are going back in time to the 70s to Sioux Falls, South Dakota.
0: had a case once, back in 79. I'd tell you the details, but it sounded like I made them up. Madness, really. Bodies? Yes, sir. One after another. Probably if you stacked them high, could have climbed to the second floor. Yeah. I saw something that year I ain't ever seen, before or since. I'd call it animal, except animals only kill for food. This was Sioux Falls. Never been?
1: Got shivers? That's Lou talking in the first season about the most haunting crime of his career. Season two is going to do a deep dive into it.
0: So we also know the cast. Patrick Wilson will star as Lou Salverson. There's also Ted Danson, Kirsten Dunst, who plays a hairdresser and models beautifully feathered hair in classic late 70s, early 80s fashion. Uh, we've got Jesse Plemons, who's a familiar face for prestige TV fans. He's from Breaking Bad and Friday Night Lights. Gene Smart, remember her, from Designing Women. Uh, also, Nick Offerman and Jeffrey Donovan. They've all got the hair and the attitude for the 1970s, judging from the teasers we've seen on FX. Uh, we can also see that there are going to be a lot of 70s pop culture references, lots of Watergate references, and a fair bit of ironic use of 70s pop music. I think there's going to be some carpenters, I'm just guessing, (laughs) used uh, to soundtrack a murder.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the Minnesota cred of the actors that they've got playing the cast this year. So we have Kirsten Dunst, who we know can do an accent because we saw her before in Drop Dead Gorgeous. We've also got Nick Offerman, who I think is actually the only member of the cast actually from the Midwest.
0: You know, I can see where this was just a really tempting opportunity for some A-list stars to come in and pretend that they had the opportunity to live and work in Minnesota.
1: Are we putting Ted Danson on the A-list?
0: He'll always be on the A-list of my heart.
1: That's right. Cheers to that.
0: Yes. Sorry.
1: So I'm looking at this huge cast and the problem I'm having is that I know I can't get attached because some of these characters are definitely going down.
0: It's tempting to think we're really going to settle in with these characters, but who knows what could happen in the very first episode. Right. We, could lost,
1: it. we lost who looked like the hero in episode one of season one. So That's right. I am just like settling in with my Kleenex, I guess.
0: So get your body count sheet ready. We're sure it's going to be pretty bloody, We'll be back every week to recap what happened, so tune in and stay safe out there, okay? Minnesota and South Dakota, too, are dangerous places.
1: Fargo premieres on Monday, October 12th at 9 central. We'll be back every Tuesday with a recap of the previous night's episode and some interviews with fascinating folks who can shed some light on exactly what's going on.
0: Aw, geez, is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Blue. Thanks to Eric Stromstead, John Gordon, and Steve Nelson. Our theme music is by The Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Find more at secretstashrecords.com. Bye now. Bye now. Okay, then.